Welcome to Stories of the Four Courts podcast. And today we're going to talk about Robert Nicholas Finn. I'll just uh, share some stuff about Mr. Finn with you. So the uh, photos here are from a photo album that belonged to Mr. Finn's wife, Emily. And I found these online. And Emily had an interesting life in her own right. But what we're going to talk about today are, is um, Emily's husband, Robert Nicholas Finn, and I suppose their children as well, and you can see their children in these photos. So to, to understand Robert Nicholas Finn, who was of course an Irish barrister in context, it's important to refer first to the long and proud tradition of Irish judicial service abroad. So you can see here some of the um, judges who went from the Irish bar uh, to serve in various British colonies. And uh, the first gentleman here is John Jeffcott, who was uh, the first justice of the Supreme Court of South Australia. And there was also Henry Barnes Gresson, who um, was the, at one time the only judge in New Zealand, but later a uh, judge of the Supreme Court of New Zealand when it got a bit bigger. And then there was uh, Michael Joseph Patrick Hogan, who was Chief Justice of Hong Kong. So these are just three examples of Irish barristers who would have served as judges abroad throughout the British Empire. And then for today's podcast, we talk about another person who was for a while, a brief while, a judge in a colony of the British Empire. And that's Robert Nicholas Finn. So in 1840, and apologies if this is a bit blurry, in 1840, uh, it was announced that Queen Victoria had been pleased to appoint Robert Nicholas Finn to be Chief Justice of the island of Tobago. And Robert Nicholas Finn was an Irish barrister. His father had been a merchant in Galway, and he had been called to the Irish bar a mere four years before this appointment was announced. So he would have been in his early to mid twenties at the time. So he must, I would say, looking at the list of Chief Justices of Tobago, he must be the youngest ever. And at the time of his appointment, uh, Robert Finn was not unknown uh, in the Irish newspapers and at the Irish bar because he had come to prominence in two or three contexts. Uh, the first context was when uh, an article that had been published by him was discovered to have been plagiarized word by word from another writer. So that was a little embarrassing. And then after that, he got involved in a duel with another member of the law library. I don't know if this duel was due to the plagiarism allegations or not, but it ended when Mr. Finn accidentally shot himself in the leg. So that was a bit embarrassing to him, but I think it was, you know, not a discreditable ending to a duel, nobody was hurt. And hopefully as time went by, Mr. Finn, and probably even, and especially the person he was in the duel against, you know, appreciated uh, the fact that he had injured himself rather than anyone else. And then also Mr. Finn got involved with the Daniel O'Connell meeting at, uh, in Galway. He was the supporter of O'Connell, which is to his credit, uh, but he behaved in a rather hot-headed way and perhaps, you know, the meeting could have been handled better. So he was already well known 
though not perhaps in the best sense, by the time this appointment was announced. And normally Irish judicial appointments, they were always very controversial because they were seen as political in nature. But in the case of Robert Finn's appointment, there was unanimity. And that was that he was completely unsuitable for the post. So this is just an example of an article that appeared in the Dublin Monitor a few days after the appointment was announced. And it drew attention to the fact that there had been no commendation whatsoever of Mr. Finn's appointment, apart from one newspaper, the Galway Advertiser. And as I mentioned, Mr. Finn's father was a merchant in Galway. So that was probably why nobody else approved the appointment. And intriguingly, the second paragraph of this article said that there were some not very credible rumours around about how Robert Nicholas Finn had got the job. And they talked about, they referred to, you can see it here, his peculiar claims, the peculiar claims of Robert Nicholas upon the, uh, the gratitude of a certain noble marquis. And they went on to say that in the total absence of all assignable reasonable motives for the appointment, they suppose that there must be some truth in the rumours alluded to. So that's quite intriguing and one wonders what exactly was the relationship between Robert Finn and the Marquis referred to and who was he, this nobleman who had appointed Robert Finn to the position? Because Robert Finn was very young and if the photos of his children were anything to go by, he was quite a good looking chap as well. So that raised all sorts of issues, which we'll return to later. But it ended then by saying that Robert Nicholas, they didn't even refer to him by his final name, had neither personal uh, merit nor public service to recommend him to government patronage. So uh, the following week, there was a letter published in the same publication by someone who appears to have been a member of the Law Library. He refers to himself as a Leinster circuiteer. And he says that the newspaper's previous remarks about Mr. Finn's appointment entitle it to the thanks of every Liberal member of the Irish Bar and also to the gratitude of the government because it said that there were so many members of the Irish Bar who were outraged and indignant at Mr. Finn's appointment because they would have been better suited to the uh, job. And it goes on to describe these other men presumably in contrast to Robert Finn, as being men of information, experience, and high moral character. And high moral character was put in italics, it's hard to miss it here. So again, that probably stoked, you know, the gossip in relation to how exactly Mr. Finn had got this post. Although it could, of course, have been just referring to his plagiarism uh, scandal. So, you see here the crest of Tobago. It's the old crest of Tobago, this new crest, which applies to Tobago and Trinidad, but this is the old crest. And you see a beautiful picture there of a ship about to, to either enter or leave harbour. And it's quite ironic that this was the crest that Robert Finn chose for his uh, luggage when he embarked for Tobago. And he also, I think, had a number of books of his speeches printed and he put this crest on uh, the books because this was the crest of Tobago. And I think he had something else added in 
to, uh, to identify himself as the Chief Justice of that island. But as it happened, when Mr. Finn's ship itself was in harbour and about to leave harbour, he received notification that his appointment had been cancelled. So that was that. And Mr. Finn never actually reached Tobago, although he is officially one of the Tobagan Chief Justices, though he never actually sat there, he, he did have the right to call himself the former Chief Justice of Tobago, which he did quite often afterwards. But even though Mr. Finn never actually got to reform the law of Tobago, he did get to reform English law in the form of a custody decision. So you can see here a custody decision, a determination of the Court of King's Bench, and it was a determination uh, in 1848, so it would have been about eight years after his Tobago appointment. And in the meantime, Mr. Finn had married to Emily, who was the owner of the photograph album. And the marriage had broken down, and uh, Emily had brought this petition to uh, stop other proceedings that have been brought by Mr. Finn to receive custody, to take to get custody of his two sons, Robert and Alfred. And I think they may have been, one of them anyway, may have been in those photos I showed you earlier. So just to give the background in terms of, you know, what happened to Mr. Finn between 1840 and 1848 and his marriage to Emily and the breakdown of that marriage. So he, after his chief justiceship didn't come off, after he had to get off the ship with all his luggage, he uh, then applied and obtained a lieutenancy in a West Yorkshire regiment. I think it was the second West Yorkshire regiment, but I don't think that worked out very well either because then he became promoter of the uh, Galway and Ennis Great Western Railway Company, which was set up at the height of the railway expansion, but that didn't work out either. So then he went to Brussels and when he was in Brussels, he met a family called the Ainsworths and Emily was an Ainsworth daughter. I think Mrs. Ainsworth, Marion Ainsworth, was a widow and she was living in Brussels with her, her, her family. And he was introduced to the family and he took a liking to Emily and she to him. And Mrs. Ainsworth had reservations about Robert Finn but he produced a volume of his speeches uh, marked with the seal of the Chief Justice of Tobago on it. And he told her that he was a former Chief Justice of Tobago and that he had a pending appointment from Sir Robert Peel uh, to act as a judge advocate in Malta. And he wanted to get married to Emily and go there very quickly. And, and Mrs. Ainsworth agreed to the wedding and the wedding took place. And Robert and Emily set off from Malta the day after the wedding. But it was unfortunate that right, you know, the day after the wedding, he asked her for money for the travel expenses, which was 50 pounds, quite a lot in those days. So that wasn't a very auspicious beginning for Robert and Emily. And in the meantime, as they were on the way to Malta, Mrs. Ainsworth received a letter from Robert Finn's father in Galway in which he said that his son was absolutely useless with money and that he wasn't going to send him any more money for the time being. So that wasn't good either. So Robert and Emily arrived in Malta and um, they waited around a bit to see if Robert would get this judge advocate appointment, 
but it never eventuated. I think Malta decided that they were only going to give judge advocate appointments to Maltese barristers, or at least that was the story Robert told Emily. So they went back to Galway and while in Galway, possibly after having listened to Robert's father, Emily took it on herself to remonstrate with Robert about his uh, profligate financial ways and he got very upset and he threw a hot glass of spirits in her face and he also hit her a few times and she threatened to put her head in the fire. So, I mean, that wasn't very good. And I think later there was an incident with Emily's nurse when Emily intervened to protect her nurse and he threw Emily and her infant child, I think Alfred had been born by this stage, to the ground. So they weren't getting on. But nonetheless, they, they went around the place. Um, they went to Plymouth first of all, and I think that's where Robert confessed to Emily that he was in difficulty with bailiffs for debts incurred before his marriage. So again, you know, not good news for poor Emily. And then they went to London and Emily suffered the ultimate ignominy for a Victorian lady. Her clothes were taken by the landlord to pay the rent. They called this distraining for rent where the personal property of the tenant would be taken to discharge the rent. And Emily's clothes were taken, which must have been very upsetting for her. And then they went back to Brussels to live with Mrs. Ainsworth. And Robert didn't get on with his mother-in-law. I'd say she was fairly fed up with him too at this stage because Emily was only about 22. So she's a very young girl to have to endure all this. And in the meantime, give birth to three children. They have three children now, Robert, Alfred, and uh, little Emily. And uh, Robert got fed up with his mother-in-law and after drinking heavily, he pawned all the plate and uh, uh, went off with the boys, Alfred and Robert. They were, I think, two and three years old. He took them off to Paris without Emily's consent. And, while in Paris, he got arrested because he had purchased a bracelet and had sold it on to raise money. But he purchased the bracelet on credit and never actually paid for it to the person he bought it from originally. So he got sent to prison in Paris. And then after that, uh, you know, the boys were incarcerated with him in prison, which must have been very distressing for all concerned. And Emily had to come over to Paris and rescue them from the prison. And, you know, one would have thought at that stage that perhaps Robert Finn might have felt that it was the kinder course of action to leave the boys with his wife, but he wasn't going to have any of that. And he issued proceedings, um, habeas corpus proceedings, to recover the bodies or possession of his children. The habeas corpus is recovery of the body, and that's the type of proceedings he issued in respect of Alfred and Robert. He had no interest in recovering little Emily because he felt she was a girl and she could stay with her mother. So uh, Emily and her mother, Marion Ainsworth, issued these counter proceedings, which were the subject of this judgment. And these counter proceedings were proceedings effectively to stop Robert from proceeding with his habeas corpus proceedings for recovery of possession of the boys. So you can see here just the head note in respect of the judgment in the case. And again, one would have thought that given Robert's previous behaviour, that, you know, it, it, one would have expected that a court might have just left the boys with Emily and Mrs. Ainsworth and would have allowed them to stop Robert Finn's habeas corpus proceedings on the basis that he clearly, you know, wasn't very good at looking after himself, never mind two toddler boys. But that wasn't what happened. So there should be somewhere around, I think I may have deleted them accidentally, but 
yeah, here he is, uh, should be a photo picture of Vice Chancellor Knight Bruce, who delivered the judgment in the Finn case. And he actually delivered two judgments. Uh, the first judgment was very sympathetic to Emily and it said, well, you know, clearly Robert wasn't a suitable person to entrust children to. He said he was a person, the wording was, a person to his guardianship who would be very objectionable to entrust children. And there was sufficient ground for depriving him of their custody. But he adjourned the matter to see if Emily could come up with evidence that she had the financial means to support the children. And at the second hearing, he held she hadn't satisfied that requirement. You see, Emily had had money settled upon her, which gave her an income, but she had used the capital to pay her husband's debts when she was still on good terms with him. So she no longer had an income in her own right, and her mother's income was settled on her mother for life, so that it would die with her mother. So her mother said that she would covenant to pay a certain amount of money to support Emily for as long as she was alive. But that was rejected by Vice Chancellor Knight Bruce on the basis that it would end when Emily's mother died. I think that seems a bit mean because surely he could have allowed custody until Emily's mother died and maybe then reopen the matter, but that wasn't what he decided. So poor Emily. So it, it looks like as a result of this application that Emily lost custody of uh, the boys. There was a bit of a row in court when the final judgment came out. Emily had a teenage brother, Robert a uh, 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 Alfred Ainsworth, and he attacked Robert afterwards. He hit him and he knocked off his hat. And uh, Robert brought proceedings against Alfred to have him bound over to keep the peace. And he, he said at the hearing of these proceedings that Emily had also attacked him. But of course, he wasn't going to have her bound over to keep the peace. So I don't know what he meant to do with her instead, uh, whether he intended to privately discipline her or not, I'm not sure. But uh, he seemed, that all seemed a little bit pompous. Robert said that he could forgive the contempt of court, but not the physical insult to him. So, you know, didn't sound very nice. Um, in, subsequently, Robert brought proceedings as well, criminal proceedings against someone who had stolen his pocket knife, which again, you know, he said he accepted it was only of trifling value, but he said it was the principle of the thing. So Robert was now a man of principle, even though he didn't seem to be able to look after his children or indeed look after himself. So, you know, uh, anyway, uh, Robert's principles, however, uh, were called into question subsequently. And I'll just go forward to another news cutting, which is a news cutting in relation to an attempt to ensnare governesses. Oops, sorry, gone a little bit ahead. So uh, this related to a scandal that Robert got involved in in 1855. And the scandal related to advertisements that Robert had placed in the newspaper uh, regarding uh, governesses. He was looking for governesses for two boys, so that kind of corroborates that he had regained possession of Alfred and uh, little Robert. And uh, the advertisement said that, you know, he's looking for governesses, but he thought it would be a good idea for successful applicants to pay him their travel expenses in advance so that uh, he could book their passage for them. And of course, as you'll remember, um, on the day after the wedding, he had also asked Emily for money for travel expenses. So travel 
women and expense, it kind of all tied together as far as this advertisement was concerned. But the problem was that he actually took money from these girls and he um, then, you know, uh, didn't actually give them the job. So he took their money for travel expenses and didn't return it. And the poor girls who probably didn't have very much money because I mean, who would become a governess unless uh, you were short of money? Uh, they didn't have very much money. So he effectively taken their, their savings. So there was a big scandal about this. And um, the scandal uh, resulted in much newspaper coverage and a couple of letters to the paper that cast interesting light on the 1840 appointment. So uh, the first of these letters it was called the case of Mr. Oren Finn because Robert had advertised as Oren Finn and I think he'd actually advertised as Captain Finn in some publications because you remember he had that lieutenancy in the West Yorkshire Regiment a long time ago. So you can see here that this is a letter from to the Times from Lord Oren Warren Brown, who was an Irish nobleman in Mayo. And he had originally been MP for Galway, and then he was ennobled as Lord Oren Warren Brown, which sounds awfully grand, but he was quite a recent elevation to the nobility. And, you know, having been in the West of Ireland, uh, it, you know, it's highly likely, I think, that he would have known Robert's father, known Robert's uncle, who were both merchants in Galway. I'm sure knew Robert, and maybe even, you know, I'm not sure what its relationship with, was with Robert, but he, maybe he ran up a few debts at Robert's father's shop, who knows? But he was very anxious to dissociate himself from this appointment. Uh, and you can see there from his letter, um, he said he was the, Robert was the son and nephew of highly respectable merchants of Galway, and he knew nothing to his prejudice when he made the appointment. But he said his responsibility of recommendation was very minute indeed, and he objected to his name being dragged into the matter. So this was all very interesting. And then there was another letter in the paper from somebody who seemed to know all about Robert, and, may even have been a member of the bar. He didn't sign his name, the letter writer. <laughs> but he said that at the time of Robert's appointment as Chief Justice of Tobago, you remember the one that he got all his luggage together for and so forth, that Robert had also inserted in the papers a notice to governesses, looking for governesses to come with him to Tobago and saying that the position of the governesses was actually to be more of a lady in waiting to him than a governess to children, and that the governesses were to have the same privileges as those attending on Her Majesty. So he wanted ladies-in-waiting to attend on him as Chief Justice of Tobago. And he thought that, you know, girls who were governesses would be suitable for this. And he advertised in the paper for them. And the letter went on to say that as soon as the Prime Minister found out about this, he immediately cancelled the appointment. And of course, that was the cancellation when Mr. Finn was on board ship with all his luggage. So, I mean, what can you say to this? I suppose the only thing you can say is, you know, that presumably he wanted some kind of female companionship to keep him happy and to be And I am reminded of the film um, all, with Oliver Reed and Amanda Donoghue called Castaway, where uh, again a British gentleman, uh, British rather than Irish in this case, but he advertises for company in a desert island. So, 
you know, maybe Mr. Finn was looking for female company in the wilds of Tobago. I mean, that's the only plausible explanation because he didn't actually have any children at the time. And he did say lady in waiting to the Chief Justice rather than governess. He didn't seem to have a wife then either. So quite extraordinary. And I mean, it's quite hard really to have much sympathy for Mr. Finn. I suppose the only good thing about the governess story is it does kind of slightly exonerate Lord Oren Moran Brown from the suspicion that he might perhaps have been in some kind of relationship with Robert, maybe even when Robert was underage and was giving him the job as a result, because clearly Robert's interests were, you know, in uh, women, uh, if he was advertising for, you know, women to keep him company in Tobago. So, you know, maybe that exonerates that rumour, but it does raise its own issues. So uh, we go back then to the photograph album of Emily Finn, the Ainsworth. And the, um, uh, the advertisement mentions uh, that uh, she may have been the Emily Finn who was a friend of the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche um, and who holidayed with him in Germany in the 1880s. And she would have been quite elderly at that time. She'd have been in her 60s, which would have been elderly then, though of course not now. And um, she certainly must have liked difficult men, if that's the same Emily Finn. But I think it must be because it mentioned that she also had a daughter and Nietzsche's friend also had a daughter called Emily. And so had this Emily. So they quite possibly the same person. So if we look at the photographs, I think this must be either Robert or, Al or, or, or Alfred, um, Robert Jr. or Alfred. Uh, looks a little bit, you know, young to be Robert Finn himself, but unless it's a very old photo, but I think the quality is too good to be, for it to be from the 1840s. And you can see he's handsome, well-dressed, and one has a suspicion he might be a redhead, although it's not a colour photo, in which case he would have taken after his father, who was supposed to be a redhead, and uh, very handsome, which I suppose is how he got away with all the things he did, mm -hmm. as long as he did. And then we have um, a young girl, who's presumably little Emily, and she looks very sweet, beautifully dressed, and then a child, who may in fact be the young man of the first photo in infancy, or maybe perhaps a brother. One hopes that Emily didn't have any more children, Robert Finn, but one never knows. So uh, to conclude then, in relation to Robert Finn and his story, it's quite hard to have much sympathy with him. Um, you know, he seems to have messed up things a little bit for himself uh, in many ways, and one wonders how anyone could be that unfortunate by accident. But he did write a book on the law of consuls and diplomatic law and trading law in British colonies. So, I mean, he did do some work um, and presumably in writing it, he must have been thinking nostalgically of his missed opportunities in Tobago. But equally, one would think Emily must have often thought nostalgically about her youth in Brussels and how different things might have been had she married a different man, particularly if he was unkind enough to follow through in his threat to deprive her of custody of her children. And it is extraordinary how Vice Chancellor Knight Bruce would have denied that custody. So things are different today, I think. But that was early English family law. So thanks very much for listening. Really appreciate anyone who has had the patience um, to get to the end of this. Thanks so much.